Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome, everyone. I'm Dr. Nate Enders from the University of Vermont. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Aaron Critch from Mayo Clinic. Dr. Critch was the author on a paper entitled Combined Tibial Tubercle Osteotomy and Medial Patellofemoral Ligament Reconstruction for Recurrent Lateral Patellar Instability in Patients with Multiple Anatomic Risk Factors, which was published in August 2018 in the Arthroscopy Journals. His co-authors included Drs. Allen, Johnson, Mohan, Stewart, and Dom. Uh, welcome, Aaron, and thank you for joining me. Well, thanks, Nate. It's an absolute uh, pleasure to be here with you. Thanks. All right, we'll get right into it. Um, uh, what do you? Can you tell us what what you think um, are the most interesting or clinically relevant findings that uh, that uh, came out of your paper? Yeah, I think um, in terms of general take home points, I think there's probably three in uh, my standpoint. Uh, first. I think you know we looked at patients that had complex recurrent lateral patellar instability. So these are patients that had multiple anatomic risk factors, you know, that were treated with MPFL and TTO. And overall, you know, they did reasonably well at four years of follow-up. Uh, 30 knees treated, only one had a post-operative dislocation. The majority of our patients were able to return to sports like soccer, football, and hockey. And if you look at their outcome scores, they did reasonably well. Uh, second. I think we need to continue to individualize treatment based on the pathoanatomy. Uh, for me, these complex patellofemoral patients, uh, it's a cue for me to slow down in clinic and you know, really perform a complete analysis with a thorough history, comprehensive physical exam, you know, really from core to floor, if you will, and to scrutinize the imaging. And finally, I think the third take-home point is that, you know, despite overall good results, you know, still females really did worse than our male patients. Um, and they really had the same BMI. They had the same cartilage status. So it's likely multifactorial in nature. Uh, we found that they did have more high-grade dysplasia. Perhaps they had more ligamentous laxity, perhaps more rotational abnormalities. But I think this is an area we need to continue to pursue. Excellent. That's a great summary. Uh, I've got a couple sort of technical questions for you. Uh, first is uh, how intraoperatively or maybe preoperatively are you determining the amount of medialization that you're going you're going to do with your TTO? Yeah, I think I think that's an excellent question. I think I'll you know even take one step back in terms of you know what are the indications for you know performing the TTO. And um, I think, you know, it really starts with clinical exam. We, you know, we tend to look at tubercle sulcus angle uh, with the knee in 90 degrees of flexion. And that at least gives you some baseline. And certainly you can then go to your quantitative measurements uh, like a TTTG. But I think it starts with the physical exam. And in terms of the amount of correction, we really use that intraoperative uh, assessment. Uh, so again, we, we really tend to place that knee in 90 degrees of flexion. And we're trying to create a neutral tubercle sulcus angle. So we are careful not to over-medialize, uh, which can be easy to do, um, but we're really shooting for a neutral tubercle sulcus angle. Okay. In in your paper, if, if, as I understand it, um, you used both pre-op CT and MRI in some cases to determine TT-TG difference. Uh, what do you, do you, do you have a preference for which 
one you use at this point, or are you using other parameters to look at tubercle offset or malalignment? Yeah, I think um, you know, we published a few years ago on uh, in the same patient. You know, CT and MRI clearly are not equivalent. Um, MRI compared to CT, on average, seems to you know estimate the TTT distance to be less. Uh, but I think you have to take it in the context of the patient. You know, I think one of the downfalls of TTTG is that it's really doesn't take into account patient-specific anatomy. So. You know, it's really an absolute distance, and we really don't use absolute distances, um, you know, in patellofemoral. You know, when we talk about patella alta, for example, we use, you know, ratios. So we have looked at other ratios where we take the TTTG and compare it to the patient's trochlear width or patellar width, and we found that previously to be better predictive uh, with more specificity, specificity and sensitivity uh, compared to an absolute distance of TTTG. In terms of uh, CT versus MRI, um, I rely more on MRI uh, in the straightforward patellofemoral instability. Uh, when I start to see more complex instability, you know, like, uh, with a significant J sign, then I'm more likely to get a CT scan and make sure that they don't have any rotational abnormalities of their femur or their tibia. Uh, because really, when you look at the TTTG, it, you know, it can either tell you that the tubercle is lateral or potentially that the trochlear groove is medial, whether that's dysplasia or version abnormalities of your femur. So I think you can't really rely just on one parameter. You really have to take the patient into account as a whole. Okay, great. Um, and, you know, a number of these patients will have articular cartilage lesions not uncommonly on the medial patellar facet. Um, if, if, if you have a patient who has a symptomatic or asymptomatic lesion on the medial patellar facet who has um, increased tubercle offset. Do you have any concerns about overloading that medial lesion if you medialize the tubercle? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great question, and that's, you know, something that does, you know, give me pause and, you know, keeps me up at night, uh, you know, when <laughs> deciding to do a tubercle osteotomy. Um, as you, uh, you know, mentioned, when you perform an antermedialization of the tubercle, it does overload the medial aspect of the patella. Uh, fortunately, a lot of those medial lesions tend to be inframedial uh, from, mm -hmm. you know, the initial uh, dislocation. So uh, one of the advantages of the TTO is that it does load the, uh, preferentially, the proximal uh, cartilage. So I find that oftentimes, uh, at least you're not overloading that area or tend to overload that area. But I think if you don't get it right in terms of, you know, good patellar tracking and good stability, you know, regardless, the cartilage isn't going to have a chance. Okay, thanks. Um, this may be kind of a broad question, um, but can you give us a sense of where you're at right now with regards to your, your sort of algorithm for managing uh, recurrent or episodic lateral patellar instability? Particularly, you know, particularly that chronic, the chronic instability patient. Has anything changed um, um, since this paper was published? Uh, that's a great question. I think you know we still, uh, you know, the majority of patellofemoral instability, I think, can be treated successfully, you know, with MPFL reconstruction alone. But I think mm -hmm. in these complex cases, you know, where there's multiple anatomic abnormalities. Then we start thinking about, you know, adding a TTO for the lateralized tubercle, 
or as you mentioned, to offload chondrosis that is symptomatic from the distal or lateral, um, you know, patellofemoral joint. For us, I think lateral lengthening uh, is an intraoperative decision, really based on patellar tilt, you know, and balancing the patellofemoral joint. Um, the, I think the interesting question that's really been raised recently is the role of trochleoplasty. So mm -hmm. if you look at, um, you know, our patient cohort, you know, the patients that did uh, not as well, you know, were the females. And specifically, uh, seven of them had a de jour D, you know, dysplastic trochlea. So the question is, you know, would those patients have done better if they were treated with a trochleoplasty? And I think uh, that's where we're starting to consider the trochleoplasty, you know, for uh, the du jour Bs and Ds that have a large supratrochlear spur, you know, with intact cartilage. Um, and I think that's an area I think that's exciting because hopefully uh, some of these patients will do better. Um, as you mentioned, a lot of these patellar instability patients have, has, have multiple risk factors for instability. What are your thoughts about surgery for the first time dislocator independent of an osteochondral fracture? who may have multiple risk factors. You think there's currently a, a, a group of patients uh, who would benefit or who you might recommend surgery on after one dislocation without a fracture? Yeah, I think um, that's really becoming a, an interesting area. Um, I'd say overall for the first time dislocator, you know, there's high level evidence to support non-operative management. And you talked about excluding the cartilage injury. But uh, as you mentioned, it's really important to assess the risk factors uh, for level of recurrence. And uh, we've come up uh, with what we call the RIP score or the recurrent instability of the patella score. And this has uh, been accepted to arthroscopy and will be published shortly. But we basically broke uh, patients down into three groups, low, intermediate, and high risk. And this is based on 10-year data uh, for their evidence or their risk for recurrence. And uh, the four most important factors that we found were age less than 25, skeletal immaturity, uh, trochlear dysplasia, and then one of our TTTG ratios uh, with the patellar width um, greater than 0.4. And, you know, if they have all these factors, and I think it's really uh, our obligation as physicians to have a discussion with the patient, and I think it's really analogous to, you know, shoulder instability. Um, yes. You have... If you have that shoulder um, instability first-time episode, but they're male, they're less than 18, they play contact sports, you, know, you can quote them that they have a 90% risk of recurrent dislocation. And I think similarly in the patellar instability population, if you have the four factors I mentioned in our RIP score, you know, they have an 80% risk of redislocation over the next 10 years. So I think it does warrant discussion with the patient. Um, I would say majority of patients are still being treated, um, you know, non-operatively after the first time dislocation, even in the setting of these risk factors, but at least they understand uh, their options. We follow them closely. I'm curious in that in the skeletally immature group that you may do a stabilization surgery on, presumably that's mostly an MPFL reconstruction alone or some variation thereof curious in your experience, maybe anecdotally, how, how are those patients doing who aren't having concomitant bony procedures because they're skeletally immature still? 
Have you found yeah, that I, they do well over time, or do, do they recur and you 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 often come back and and have to do supplemental procedures? Yeah, I think I think again that's a great question. We um, you know traditionally um, you know we were doing MPFL repairs in that population. I think more recently now you know the data would favor an MPFL reconstruction. So I'm not mm-hmm. sure if we have long enough data to know that. Anecdotally, from my personal experience, um, I think those patients tend to do well. Um, you know, uh, one of the advantages of potentially stabilizing them at a young age is perhaps there's a chance for that patellofemoral joint to still remodel, uh, especially mm-hmm. on the uh, trochlear side. But I think it's a little bit uh, too early to tell and say that everybody's doing well. But I can say my personal experience that, you know, so far at short-term follow-up, patients seem to be doing reasonably well. Okay. Uh, last question, uh, Aaron. Uh, in your mind right now, in the patellofemoral world, what are what are some what do you think are some like what are the hot topics in terms of major areas for further study or really sort of burning unanswered questions um, in your mind that need to be addressed? Yeah, I think um, you know I, I I reflect on you know this uh, small patient cohort that we published and. I think, you know, it really does lead to more, you know, questions and areas of future research. So one for me would be, you know, which patient really needs a tibiotubercle osteotomy. Um, Again, we've kind of um, used these time-honored cutoffs, if you will, of a TTTG of 20. But again, that's not the same for every patient. Perhaps some patients would be, you know, treated okay with an MPFL reconstruction alone. So I think we need to all um, kind of standardize in terms of what measurements we're looking at and how we're assessing these patients to determine, you know, who needs the osteotomy, because as we've all seen, it really does change their rehabilitation. Um, I think second of all, we touched on it earlier, you know, what's the role of trochleoplasty? Uh, which knees really need it? Uh, certainly historically, uh, you know, it's had a high rate of stiffness and arthritis, but uh, with newer techniques, hopefully we do better and see where that fits in uh, to our algorithm. And then, um, you know, just overall, how do we best, um, you know, manage these patients in the long run? Are we changing the natural history of this patellofemoral joint, or are we still going to see high rates of arthritis at longer-term follow-up? All right, great. That was fantastic. Um, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. Uh, Dr. Critch's article, um, Combined Tubercle Osteotomy and Medial Patellofemoral Ligament Reconstruction for Recurrent Lateral Patellar Instability in patients with multiple anatomic risk factors to be found in the August 2018 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal or online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. Thank you for joining us.